Well, again, good to be with you here today. Welcome to those who are listening or watching online. It was 16 years ago that I was studying to be a pastor. I was going through the seminary, and I was a single young man studying at the seminary. And in case you didn't know, it's hard to meet a single young woman when you're going to an all-male seminary. So what we'd occasionally do at the seminary, and this wasn't the only reason, but it was kind of the matchmaking thing too, we'd have occasional gatherings where everyone could invite their friends, their family, uh, their single acquaintances, if you know what I mean. And I'm not going to call it a party because we also had, we would occasionally have beer at these get-togethers. And as soon as you hear pastor's beer party, like your mind goes places. So it was a social gathering with beer included. And I was at one of these. It was my first year at the seminary. Like I said, I was a single young man. And so I happened to be, somehow I positioned myself to be standing next to a single young woman. And I started to learn her story. The reason she was there is because she went to a nearby college and she had a brother-in-law, like it still does have a brother-in-law, who was in the class ahead of me going at the seminary. He was married. I I was not. That's why she had a brother-in-law. But... so they brought her along. They wanted her to meet a good Lutheran, you know, good Christian young man, and she had nothing of it, but they said there's, there's beer there, so she, she's a college student, you know, connect the dots. Um, and so anyway, I'm standing next to her, and I'm kind of getting to know her, and she's very, like, almost confrontational with me. She says, just so you know, I'm never, I don't really like pastors, and I'm, I would never marry a pastor. And I'm like, that's fine. I'm just asking what your name is. I'm not <laughs> getting on a knee to propose. But. And so we were having this discussion. And I'm like, wow, she's really like pretentious a little bit because she's... Anyway, so that kind of you know, made me stand off a bit. But at the same time, I'm like, as soon as you tell a guy that you won't marry him because of his career path, he thinks, challenge accepted. <laughs> and... So we get to know each other, we exchange numbers, we, we hung out. As it turns out, a lot of the things that she didn't like about, you know, pastor stuff is the stuff I didn't like either. And so, like, I can be a different kind of pastor, and we kind of worked that out. But anyway, um, her name was Amy, and we now have three kids. <laughs> and we did get married. <laughs> In there, we We did. But the reason I tell you this story is because there is a moment where I'm like, well, what is it that she sees about pastors? Or what does she think of them that she just despises them so much? And then I'm also thinking, okay, well, where is this turning point? Like, where's the point at which I can get her from saying I will never marry a pastor to saying I do? And someone in the first service said, you never answered the question. I was offended. It was my good looks. (laughs) That settled the deal. No, we, we... as we learn more about like, what does pastoring mean, like, it kind of changed for both of us what our vision and, and what the possibilities of that were. The, the whole reason I bring this up, there's a spiritual point to this. The whole reason I bring this up is because there's a very similar question that we ask about God. I asked in my mind about her, I said, well, what is it that she thinks about me or about being a pastor that, that's turning her off? In some similar ways, we ask the same question about God. If you approach God from a rational perspective as an adult, there are certain things that you're going to have to check off your list. The first big thing is, is there a God? And I believe you can look at a lot of evidence and data out there and the, uh, the patterns that exist in this world. And the biggest thing that I always look to is the fact that a, a man named Jesus 
physically died, was buried for three days, and then came back to life. And that was a demonstration, a historical event that, yes, there is a God out there. But if you approach God from a rational perspective and try to figure out faith on those bases, the first thing is you have to figure out, is there a God? And once you say yes to that, then another question has to come into play. If there is a God, if God is here, what does he think about me? When he looks at me, am I the kind of person that he would like to be with? Does he approve of me? In, in marriage terms, would, would he be with me? Would he date me? Would he marry me? Is there close enough of a connection there that we can be together in a clear way? And a lot of people, what I, what I love about our church, we, we get people who are later in life and they're just trying to sort through all this stuff. A lot of people, as they answer this question, they answer, God loves me. But they answer that way for the wrong reason. God loves me because I try hard. A lot of people answer this the negative way. They say, God doesn't love me. He wants nothing to do with me. And the reason they answer that way, again, is for the wrong reason. What does God think of me? And this isn't something that just adults who are trying to figure out faith for the first time think about. Even if you were born and raised a Christian, this is a question that has surfaced itself over and over and over. In fact, maybe there was a day earlier this month where you woke up thinking about the things you had done the day before, and all you could think about was this question. What does God think of me? And as soon as you come to a conclusion on this, then comes the more haunting question. At what point does that change? If he is pleased with me, at what point will he not be pleased with me anymore? Where's that tipping point? Or if he's not pleased with me, what would it take to change that? And these were questions that haunted a man, much like you if you're a man, haunted a man named Moses about 4,000 years ago because he woke up one morning thinking, what in the world does God think about me and about the people whom I represent? We know he was for us, but are we at the point where we've changed that? At what point does his goodness change? And what I think for you is, as we look at what happened with this man named Moses, and you'll hear his story in a minute, As you hear what he went through and the struggle he went through, I pray that you will find a firm, definitive answer to this for the right reason. What does God think about you? Now, kind of accidentally, what we've done in this series is we've basically given you an entire history of the Old Testament And we didn't mean to do this, it just kind of happened this way, where part to part to part, we followed all the main characters of the Old Testament to give you a brief overview, which I think is a cool thing. But what I'm going to do is just real quickly um, get you to where we're at today with Moses, because in order to understand Moses, you have to understand where we started in the series with Adam and Eve, and then especially Abraham. Uh, We talked about Adam and Eve week one, and in week two, we talked about Abraham and Sarah, and how God, of all the people... That, uh, that were descendants of Adam and Eve, God pointed to Abraham and said, you'll be the one who gets the promise that I promised to Adam and Eve. You and one of your descendants will be the savior of the world. And so Adam, or, um, Abraham and Sarah, they were well along in years. And when Sarah heard the news that she would have a child when she was 90 years old, what did she do? She laughed. Good. So you are paying attention to Pastor Ben. 
It does happen. So she left, and then a year later, sure enough, she had a baby boy, and she named him Isaac, which means laughter, laughter. It was a different kind of laughter, and a joyful kind of laughter, not one of cynicism. But uh, anyway, so Isaac was the son of Abraham and Sarah, and then Isaac, we saw, had a son, actually twin sons, named Esau and Jacob, and we're going to give you a quiz on, at the end, by the way. So Isaac had Jacob. Jacob inherited the birthright, which means he would inherit that promise of the Savior coming through his line. And then Jacob had 12 sons. We haven't talked about this yet, but he had 12 sons. I'm not going to list all their names. I'm just going to show you one of them. Joseph was one of the 12. And you might remember Joseph from the Bible. This is the one who was sold as a slave by his brothers. He, he uh, went to Egypt, and because of his position in Egypt, he was able to position it so that it would be ready for a seven-year famine. Um, so he brought his brothers, he brought all their families down to Egypt, and the descendants of Jacob, also known as the descendants of Israel, as his other name was, they stayed in Egypt for 400 years. And it was during that time that they were blessed, they multiplied, but it was also during that time the Egyptians did not want to become the minority in their own country. So they made a rule. Anyone who is a descendant of Israel is hereby a slave. If you were born as a descendant of, of Jacob, you were a slave. And that's how they controlled the population. Until after 400 years, things got so bad, it got to a point where they, just, they, they weren't just slaves. It was a matter of life and death. They could not stay in Egypt any longer. So God sent a man named Moses. Moses. And it's through Moses. God used him as a spokesman to, uh, first of all, try to negotiate with Pharaoh, but then ultimately defeat Pharaoh, to let those people go from Egypt. So here's where we find things today. They are no longer, these, these Israelites, they are no longer under the government, no longer under the rule of the Egyptians, which they had known for 400 years. That's all they knew. They're no longer part of that government. Now they are freed. But there's chaos. As they leave Egypt, God demonstrates to them through a matter of weeks, they will be taken care of with water and food and basic necessities. Those things are established. But what they did not have was a country, a government, a system to operate by. And so that's where we get to Mount Sinai, where the Israelites camped out for a while. God, at Mount Sinai, God said, Moses, today's the day we establish a constitution, or a, what uh, in biblical terms, a theocracy, a God-ordained government for this people. I will be their king, I will be their God, and they will be my people. I will bless them. And God said, Moses, we need to drop the constitution, we need to drop the covenant, come up on Mount Sinai, and we'll work this out. And so Moses went up there, and for 40 days, Moses was in the presence of God. And you can imagine this, a legal code doesn't happen overnight. Yes, there were the Ten Commandments and the moral code and the ethical code, but there, there's also the don't do this, and if you do, here's the fine, here's the punishment. It was all of these details that God had to give to Moses. And so for 40 days, Moses is up there. And by the end of it, Moses comes down with these two tablets full of God's covenant, God's agreement for how these people would live. And as Moses comes down, what he finds breaks his heart. When the people saw that Moses for, was so long in coming down from the mountain, they went to Aaron. And Aaron was like the spokesman 
Moses didn't like to talk, so Aaron was the speaker. People viewed him as second in command. So when they saw that Moses was so long, they assumed he was gone. So they went to Aaron and, and they said, we want you to do something about this. Now what they do next, we quickly judge and label as foolish. But what they do next actually demonstrates a wisdom that actually exceeds what is common to us today. Here's what they did. They gathered around Aaron and they said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. What they knew is that God was with Moses. But now Moses is gone. What they recognize and what we quickly forget is that there has to be some sort of intermediary between us and God. We can't just jump back, uh, jump straight directly up to him. So the people said, we lost Moses. We don't know where he is. So Aaron, we know that this is a really bad alternative, but this is the best we can do. This is giving them the benefit of the doubt, by the way. Aaron, we know this isn't a very good alternative, but would you make us some gods? You know, they can be your gods and then you can lead us. That way you can, they can lead us where we need to go because we, we're, we're lost. We're clueless. And so maybe if you uh, grew up in church, you know what Aaron did. Uh, he, he said, all right, give me your earrings, give me your jewelry, let's melt down the gold, and we'll see what comes out. And lo and behold, a golden calf comes out. The people see this golden calf, they say, let's have this big celebration. So they get this big worship service, they do a, a lot of things that I don't want to mention with uh, kids in the room, and they basically wrote off God and Moses, and they uh, came up with their own gods instead. And if you're meeting with a growth group this week, First of all, hats off for meeting on Christmas week. But one of the questions that you'll wrestle with is, what were they so hungry for? When they thought Moses was gone, there was this vacuum. What was making them so hungry to fill that with something so foolish? And I think if you can answer that, you can also address the vacuum that you sometimes feel when you think God isn't there anymore. But as this all is going on, they're, they're, they're dancing, they're celebrating, worshiping this golden calf because they wanted to go before them. I don't know how fast golden calves can trot, but they were wanting this golden calf to go before them, to lead them the way. And Moses comes down to see all of this happening, and his heart is broken. He hasn't even delivered these tablets to the people, or he hasn't even read it to them yet. And already he can see that they've already destroyed God's agreement. They broke the very first rule. Don't make any idols. And by the way, anytime you see God appear in like his real form, not just taking the form of a human, it's always in a form that you can't duplicate. He didn't want images set up of himself. He appeared to Moses one time in a fire. You can't recreate the flickering of a fire in a permanent state. When God appears, it's not in something that we can replicate because he is beyond, uh, beyond and above this creation. But as Moses comes down, he sees what's happened. And what he does is he throws it all down. Verse 19. When Moses approached the camp and he saw the calf and the people dancing, not the calf dancing, but the calf and the people dancing. His anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And in your Bible, there might be a little footnote that Moses did not have apple care. So the tablet breaking was 
It's not a footnote, I'm kidding. It's not in there. Um, he broke them to pieces. It, it was symbolic, but at the same time, it was a literal. He didn't even have time to tell the people what their job was in this, in this new government, this new system. They had already broken it. Everything was broken. And so read through the chapter at home. There's lots of stuff that, that happens after this. Moses has to address the people. He actually makes them ingest this golden calf, which they made for themselves. It's kind of funny to read about it. But then the next morning, Moses is sleeping on this overnight. <clears throat> the next morning, he gets up in front of the people, and he has to address them. And he... He's thinking on this all night. Like he's wondering about this question. What does God think of us now? How can I go back up to God and say, sorry, I broke these. Sorry, the people did this. He's wondering, what does God think of us now? And at what point did that change? So the next day, Moses has to confront the people. He said to them, you have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord, and the best I can give you is this. Perhaps, perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Atonement simply means to bring together again, to make at one again. Perhaps we can do something where we can smooth all of this over. This was uncharted territory for Moses and for the people because this was the first time God had ever, of all the people on the earth, chosen one people to be his nation and to make a government out of it. So what would God think of them? And and at what point? would that change? And I know many of you maybe right now are thinking the same thing. It's maybe not, you know, dancing around a golden calf, although if you've done that, there's forgiveness. There's forgiveness if you've done that. But you might be thinking of this question in a different way. What does God think of me? Maybe there was one morning in particular you woke up. Maybe it was a season of mornings you woke up. And because of something bad happening in your life or because of something that you felt was bad you did in your life, you could not find a, a good, solid answer to this question. What does God think of me? I know the pastor, and I know the preacher, I know the church I went to, it talked about forgiveness and love, but quietly and inwardly, I was wrestling with what God really thinks about me. Perhaps in one point of your life, you felt that he loved you, but at what point does that change? At what point does he cut it off and say, you're done? I'll find a new person, a new people. But what Moses came to, the conclusion he came to, is the, someone, the same one that you and I, if we're honest, we have to acknowledge also. Where does that stop? At what point does that change? Well, here's the truth. Number two, humanity has collectively and individually crossed that line. We did that long ago. All it takes is one time, one moment, one golden calf, one misplaced priority, one night of sin. For God to say, you crossed the line. I was good for you, but you returned that with evil. It's fully within his right to set those terms. And so in this moment, Moses, and by extension, we also, as we join him in this moment, Moses is wondering, what does God think of us? What does God think of me? And will that ever change? So Moses, there's this long interaction in in Exodus chapters 32 and 33. But in in short, we'll kind of summarize it with these few verses. So Moses went back to the Lord and he said, Oh, (laughs) I like how it just starts with, oh. Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. 
I think the O means head slap too. That's like the Greek or the Hebrew way of, of denoting a head slap. Oh, they've made themselves gods of gold. They've done a great, terrible thing. But then Moses, in uncharted territory, is trying to figure out what God would do, where that line is. He asks this question. But now please, would you forgive their sin? If, if possible, could you do that? And if not possible, would you instead blot out my name from the book that you've written? Would you take out one in order to spare the many? A noble thing to do, but unfortunately Moses had no position to make that kind of an offer. It would not be until another descendant of Israel would come and say, Father, take me instead of them. And so God and Moses, they go back and forth. Moses said, if, if, if you can forgive them, please do, but if not, take it out on me, take it out on me, spare the people. And they go back and forth, and God says, well, okay, go on your way. I'll send my angel, but I'm not going to go with you because I'll probably kill you on the way. It's, it's like this really upfront conversation where God says, they did something that broke the relationship. We can't just overlook this. And so Moses pleads and pleads and pleads, please, we will not move from this place. We cannot break camp until I know that you're with us. And so God says, you're right. My presence is with you. I am pleased with you. I will go with you. But Moses wants more assurance than that. He says to God, a bold question. He says, now, show me your glory. Prove to me that you will do what you have promised you will do. To which God said, number one, you can't handle my glory. If you were to see me, it would destroy you. Number two, I'll give you something even better. So here, finally, we get to the text that's in your worship folder. Verse 30, uh, chapter 34, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, here's what I want you to do. Chisel two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets which, tablets which you have broke. Which, first of all, this is grace already. <laughs> that God would repeat the same words, the same covenant, even though the people have already demonstrated an inability to keep it. You would think that he would change the contract going forward to have a whole bunch of disclaimers and a whole bunch of footnotes, a lot of small print to say that if the people do this, then I'm out. But God says, no, the covenant, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just that I have to take a bigger part of it. So God sits down. He says, let's make this again. So verse two, he says to Moses, be prepared, get early, uh, be, be ready early in the morning. And then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me on top of the mountain. Well, what does God think of me? And at what point does that change? Does their misbehavior, does their sin change God's attitude towards them? And so here's what happened. Verse 4, Moses chiseled out two stone tablets just like the first ones and went up on Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Just imagine that, carrying the weight of these two stone tablets, waiting to see what God would do. And here's what God did. He showed up. He is present in a very real way, but he did something so much better than just giving Moses a chance to sketch down what the face of God looks like. 
God gave him something better. Verse 5 says this, The Lord came down in the cloud. Again, a form that you cannot recreate. This isn't about creating a picture or an idol. It's about being in the presence of God. He came down in the cloud and stood there with him, and he proclaimed his name, the Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, which in Hebrew sounds very similar to I am. Here I am. I am not changed. I am still here. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming one of the first sermons we see God preach. It's a, it's a sermon on his own name. He says this, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. If you were to get out a piece of paper and try to draw the face of God or try to draw the image of God, what you would end up drawing is what's on the screen right now. This is better than any picture that you could possibly see of God. What Moses needed was not a picture of what God's face looks like. The best picture of God is the words that describe him. It's the recital of his characteristics. The goodness of God is not about the beauty of his face. It's about the repetition of who he is. And the clear message to Moses in this moment is that despite what the people did, I still am who I am. And that's true of you too. You might wake up in the morning one day and say, God, what do you think of me? But the answer will always be the same. Regardless of what you did, I still am who I am. You cannot change that. Now, the next verse acknowledges an equal truth that seems to be contradictory to what's up here right now. But at the same time, it has to be held true. And before I put it up there, I just want to maybe give a quick illustration if, if you're in court, if you're before the judge, and if, and if you're guilty, you have to ask for mercy that he would lighten the sentence or take it away. It'd be totally different if you're in a courtroom where the judge always, no matter what, declared everyone not guilty. You wouldn't have to ask for mercy or grace because that's just what the judge did. In absence of the possibility of ju- judgment, mercy and grace and compassion cannot be demonstrated. So as you think about that, here's what else God says in verse 7. Yet, speaking about himself, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Wait, you just said he forgives sins and and is gracious and compassionate. Yes, but at the same time, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. And then he goes on to describe it this way. On top of that, he punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation, which to you might seem unfair. Why would God punish children for what their parents did? We'll talk about what this means in just a minute, but first, the thing to keep in mind is that this is true as much as God's forgiveness is true. Well, does he forgive sin? Yes. Does he punish sin? Yes. But the big picture to take away from this first is that who he is doesn't change based on what we do. I put it this way in number three, what you do is really inconsequential to who I am, which was good news to Moses, good news to those Israelites, and I pray good news for you. What does God think of me? We often ask that question after events happen, after we do things. But what you do is inconsequential to who he is. He's a God of grace, mercy, compassion, absolutely. But there's still that 
little thing in there, but he does not leave guilt unpunished. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, what you would see is instead of God dealing with individual people, he would address people as a group, as a whole. Um, so in other words, when like one person from the, the nation would do something wrong, all the people would suffer for it until that bad thing was addressed. And often the, the reason you see this happen is because that's how God approaches humanity. All of humanity has crossed that line. All of humanity has been condemned. But that means that where there is one condemnation for all men, so there can also be one act of justification being declared not guilty for all people. But how would that happen? Well, in the light of this, Moses had only one reaction. He interpreted this as a good thing, as good news. When he heard this statement that the Lord is compassionate, gracious, slow to love, and yes, he still, he still punishes sin, Here's what Moses did. He got down on the ground and at once he worshiped. You don't change just because of what I do. And for that, you deserve honor and praise. You are greater than I am. You are independent of me. And yet you make a big deal about me. He worshiped and he honored. And then he made a request. He simply held God to his word. Lord, he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. Can you just, can you forgive us? And the Lord responded with this. The Lord said, I'm making a covenant. We'll do this. I am who I am. What you did is inconsequential to who I am. I am slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, yet I will not leave sin unpunished. So part of the covenant included this, that when people would sin and disobey God, there was sacrifice necessary. Not just an occasional once a year thing, although there were annual sacrifices, but there was continual sacrifice day after day going on as a reminder that yes, the people are forgiven for what they did, but sin had to be punished. And this would endure for centuries and centuries where people just got into this routine of knowing where there is sin, it can be forgiven, but at the same time, it has to be punished. It wouldn't be until Jesus came, the ultimate gift of God, that there would be one sacrifice, one sacrifice that would be for all. And here's the other thing about Moses real quick. You see, the good thing that God gave to him was not a portrait of what he looks like, but it was a declaration of who he is. It was the words about God that scriptures would repeat over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament. Is that declaration, the word of God, until the time fully came and the word of God actually one day became flesh to be that one sacrifice so that what God promised about himself in Exodus 34 before Moses would finally come true. That every sin would be punished. At the same time, every sin would be forgiven. All because of one. And that's the greatest gift that we see at Christmas. So if, if you walked into this message and you're thinking, I wonder what God thinks about me. And at what point does that change? What God thinks about you and the point at which that changed is all in one place. At the cross of Jesus. And it's at Christmas we celebrate the fulfillment of what God ultimately hinted at to Moses and the Israelites. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, I know that whether people are navigating faith for the first time <clears throat> or they've been 
going to church for their entire life, there can be moments in life where we really have to do some introspection and ask the question, well, what, what do you think of us? And often those are moments of guilt and shame. Sometimes there are moments where just bad things are happening and we don't know where you are. I pray that as we looked at the account of Moses on top of the mountain today with you, that you would help us to see that no matter what happens to us, no matter what we do, that's inconsequential to who you are. You are the same yesterday and today and forever. You're a God who forgives and loves while you're also a God who punishes every sin. And we thank you that that one sacrifice has now been fulfilled for all people. So today, let us rest in that hope and peace of knowing who you declare us to be, and that is your forgiven children. In Jesus' name, amen.